Okay, so uh, last week we had our first dose of plagues, um, so to speak, and today we're looking at the remaining plagues in Exodus chapter 9 and chapter 10. With the subjects for last week and this week being very similar as far as the programme is concerned, both are titled as looking at God's power and mercy revealed, there is quite a bit of overlap. <coughs> And I did think about going just straight to the following week's subject, which is the Passover. But I think we'll stick to the programme, um, especially as the Passover has a, a um, special relevance in Easter week. So it'd be nice, I think, to, to wait until then before we look at the Passover. But the subtle difference between the two subjects is that last week the focus was um, to be more on humanity's weakness and inability to save itself and this week we're going to focus more on God's judgment. Uh, but it's actually quite difficult to differentiate between the two because aspects of both are seen really throughout um, the, whole, the whole story, all, 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 all the plagues. So we'll, um, we'll just see how we, how we get on. Um, I'm going to try not to repeat the points that David made so very well um, last week. It's quite a long passage, uh, but I am going to read it all because I think that's how God wants it to be looked at. Um, you might have noticed from my um, thoughts in Thanksgiving this morning that I have been thinking quite a bit about the storytelling that we get um, in the Bible. And um, God wants these momentous events um, in history to be remembered as a, as a dramatic story. I think sometimes to be efficient in our study, we, um, we, we grab key verses from here and there, and sometimes we lose, we, we, we lose the context. But um, there's a, just at the beginning of verse 10, you notice, and that this was, I was quoting this this morning, um, we find um, in, in chapter 10, the end of verse 1, um, it says, that I may perform these signs of mine among them, that you may tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them and that you may know that I am the Lord. So as we thought, uh, God's purpose in the plagues wasn't just to persuade Pharaoh to let um, the Israelites go. He didn't need Pharaoh's permission for that. God could have led the Israelites out of Egypt without the Egyptians being able to do anything about it if he if, um, if he, he'd chosen um, um, to do it that way. But at the end of the verse I just read, we had a real key purpose in all of this, that the Israelites would know that God is the Lord. That's why he did what he did and the way he did it. And it wasn't just a revelation for the Israelites, it was a revelation for the Egyptians too, for the Egyptians and the Israelites to know that God is, is the Lord. And part of that revelation was his almighty power, as we've been thinking. But bearing in mind that God hadn't revealed very much about himself to very many people at this point in history, he wanted to reveal more than that. It was going to be more than about his almighty power. And these were the lessons that God wanted um, the people to remember which is why I think he wanted these events um, 
told and remembered dramatically because as Hollywood knows, um, that's what people remember. People love a good story and a dramatic, exciting story is all the better. That's, that's how people uh, remember. So these plagues were to be <laughs> the bedtime stories for generations of small children. Nice. <laughs> but it may well have given them nightmares. But they would remember and understand that their God is a God of power and also judgment. And with his judgment, also a God of mercy. So we've had five plagues so far. And now we're going to read um, the first of the next batch. And uh, this one is, starts in um, verse 8 of chapter 9. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from a furnace and let Moses toss it into the air in the presence of Pharaoh. It will become fine dust over the whole land of Egypt and festering boils will break out on people and animals throughout the land. So they took soot from a furnace and stood before Pharaoh. Moses tossed it into the air and festering boils broke out on people and animals. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils that were on them and on all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron just as the Lord had said to Moses. Okay, so we have festering painful boils. Well, we don't have festering painful boils. We have the Egyptians um, with this um, terrible um, inf disease inflicted on them, um, and not just the Egyptians, but their animals as well. We know from chapter 7 um, that we read previously that all the plagues contained an element of judgment. And one of the things about God's judgment is that it is absolutely just. God is always fair and righteous in his judgment. And the Israelites weren't blameless, of course, and the Israelites would come under God's judgment in due course. But right now, in history, in God's sovereign will and timing, it was the time for the Egyptians to be judged. And so, in the plagues, God differentiated, and I think we made this point last week anyway, but just to reiterate, God differentiated between the two peoples. Um, you know, it, it says that the plague was on, the Egyptians and their animals and Pharaoh's officials, not on the Israelites, it seems. So God was using a big sledgehammer with these, these plagues, but he was delivering the blows with pinpoint accuracy. We, um, we have a term, don't we? Um, we might not use it ourselves, but we recognise it, collateral damage. When we can't control some of the outcomes which might be around the edge of the thing that we're, we're, we're trying to do. We call it collateral damage. I don't think that term is in God's dictionary. He's not a God of collateral damage. He judges with precision. Let's move on to the next play, the next play, because it's quite a, it's, it's a longer passage. Um, this is the, uh, the plague of hail. Uh, so we're going to read on from verse 13. <coughs> then the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. Let my people go, so that they may worship me. Or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you. 
and against your officials and your people, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now, I could have stretched out my hands and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You still set yourself against my people and will not let them go. Therefore, at this time tomorrow, I will send the worst hailstorm that has ever fallen on Egypt from the day it was founded till now. Give an order now to bring your livestock and everything you have in the field to a place of shelter because the hail will fall on every person and animal that has not been brought in and is still out in the field and they will die. Those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside. But those who ignored the word of the Lord left their slaves and livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards the sky so that hail will fall all over Egypt, on people and animals and on everything growing in the fields of Egypt. When Moses stretched out his staff towards the sky, the Lord sent thunder and hail and lightning flashed down to the ground. So the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. Hail fell and lightning flashed back and forth. It was the worst storm in all the land of Egypt since it has become a nation. Throughout Egypt, hail struck everything in the fields, both people and animals. It beat down everything growing in the fields and stripped every tree. The only place it did not hail was the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. This time I have sinned, he said to them. The Lord is in the right and I and my people are in the wrong. Pray to the Lord, for we have had enough thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't have to stay any longer. Moses replied, when I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands in prayer to the Lord. The thunder will stop and there will be no more hail so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. For I know that you and your officials still do not fear the Lord God. There's a verse that just seems to be inserted now, but it's relevant. The flax and barley were destroyed since the barley was in the ear and the flax was in bloom. The wheat and spelt, however, were not destroyed because they ripened later. Then Moses left Pharaoh and went out of the city. He spread out his hands towards the Lord. The thunder and hail stopped, and the rain no longer poured down on the land. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. So Pharaoh's heart was hot, and he would not let the Israelites go, just as the Lord had said through Moses. So, uh, the plague of hail. Plenty of uh, shock and awe in, uh, in this plague. As David said uh, last week, this was a visible and terrifying display of God's power. And again, as an instrument of God's judgment, it was targeted. As it said in verse 26, the storm didn't hit the land where the, where the Israelites uh, lived. And as we saw last week, there's evidence of God's mercy in the measure of judgment that was being inflicted on the Egyptians. If you look at verse um, 15, you can see that God refers to the previous plagues and said that he could have wiped out the Egyptians completely by now. So clearly God was showing restraints in what he was doing. He was giving them an opportunity 
to repent. And I'll come back to that a little bit later because it is a genuine opportunity to repent. But even in the hailstorm, where God said he was sending the full force of his plagues against them, even there we see restraint. Firstly, he was giving them a way of escape in the early warning and the promise that anyone who was brought inside would not, um, would not die. Secondly, in verse 32, and um, that, the verse that seems to be inserted, but also there's references in, verse ten, in chapter 10, we find that God didn't actually destroy everything <coughs> that wasn't um, brought indoors. And thirdly, God showed mercy in response to Pharaoh's apparent repentance even though it's very clear from verse 30 that God knew very well that the repentance wasn't sincere, but I'm going to come back to that point as well a little bit later. I think there is an interesting point about God's judgment here linked to his mercy, and that's individual accountability. In the previous plagues, as Dave mentioned, they were of increasing irritation, and, but all the, all the Egyptians were affected. Now, where it's a matter of life or death, for anyone that was left out in the field, God's given the opportunity for anyone, anyone in, amongst them, the Egyptians, who believed the word of the Lord, he was giving an opportunity for them to be saved. Only the unbelievers would die. Only those who chose to ignore the warning, and they would be held accountable for the choice that they made. There's an obvious parallel with the gospel, isn't there? Um, it says in John 3 and 36, those who reject the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. And in both examples, John 3 and here in, in Exodus, it's not the lack of belief that is being judged directly. Because in, in John 3, um, the wrath is already on the believer and the judgment is for all of their sin, past, present and future. Same with the Egyptians. But in both examples, the lack of faith indirectly results in judgment, doesn't it? Because they, in Egypt, were refusing the lifeline, the salvation that was being, being offered to them. And likewise today, uh, I don't think God sends people to hell for unbelief. He sends people to hell for all of the sin. But a lack of belief is saying no to the to the, to, the, to the lifeline. I often describe the image of someone falling into the ocean and you know, being thrown a life ring. Grab the life ring. Well, I suppose you could argue that they drowned because they didn't, they didn't, they didn't grab the life ring. But actually they drowned because they were in the sea. The life ring was a way of escape that people reject today, metaphorically, when they reject the gospel. So God holds us accountable for our sin but he also holds us accountable for our choices in relation to whether or not we accept his salvation. That's effectively what was happening, I think, in, um, in Egypt. And then just going back to Pharaoh's apparent repentance, um, another just point I wanted to make is that for God, sin is serious. Sin is always serious with God. And he doesn't accept lip service. Although Pharaoh went through the motions of saying he'd sinned. His motive is very clear in verse 28. He just wanted to make, this, he wanted to make it stop. That was the only reason he said what he, he said. He didn't have a genuine and humble attitude of repentance that, that, God, that God was looking for and that God 
looks for today, doesn't he? The gospel calls for faith and repentance, and it's possible to fake both as far as we can tell. But God isn't fooled. God knows what's genuine, and pretend confessions of faith um, will never wash with God. They won't lessen, lessen his judgment. He stopped the hailstorm, not because Pharaoh repented. He stopped the hailstorm in mercy to the people. And that's the only, the only reason God can always spot a fake. So let's read on. We've got the next plague is the plague of locusts. And we're reading now in chapter 10. We'll start at verse 3 because we've already looked at the first two verses. Verse 3, chapter 10. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will bring locusts into your country tomorrow. They will cover the face of the ground so that it cannot be seen. They will devour what little you have left after the hail, including every tree that is growing in your fields. They will fill your houses and those of all your officials and all the Egyptians, something neither your parents nor your ancestors have ever seen from the day they settled in this land till now. Then Moses turned and left Pharaoh. Pharaoh's officials said to him, how long will this man be a snare to us? Let the people go, so they may worship the Lord their God. Do you not yet realise that Egypt is ruined? Then Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. Go worship the Lord your God, he said, but tell me who will be going. Moses answered, we will go with our young and our old, with our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and herds, because we are to celebrate a festival to the Lord. Pharaoh said, the Lord be with you. If I let you go along with your women and children, clearly you're bent on evil. No, let only the men go and worship the Lord, since that's what you've been asking for. The Moses and Aaron were driven out of Pharaoh's presence. <coughs> and the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over Egypt so that locusts swarm over the land and devour everything growing in the fields, everything left by the hail. So Moses stretched out his staff over Egypt. And the Lord made an east wind blow across the land all that day and all that night. By morning, the wind had brought the locusts. They invaded all Egypt and settled down in every area of the country in great numbers. Never before had there been such a plague of locusts, nor will there ever be again. They covered all the ground until it was black. They devoured all that was left after the hail. Everything growing in the fields and the fruit on the trees, nothing green remained on tree or plant in all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh quickly summoned Moses and Aaron and, said, Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now forgive my sin once more and pray to the Lord your God to take this deadly plague away from me. Moses then left and prayed to the Lord and the Lord changed the wind to a very strong east-west wind which caught up the locusts and carried them into the Red Sea. Not a locust was left anywhere in Egypt but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let the people go. It's uh, another quite long um, episode in the story, and there's actually not a, a lot of extra that I want to, to bring out of all of those many words. I think we've got similar points here as we, as we had before. Um, we see signs of mercy again. Um, it was a, a, a terrifying judgment um, targeted at the Egyptians, um, and everything was consumed. It, it did remind me of the um, verse we know very well from Hebrews 12 that tells us that in judgment our God is a consuming fire. 
But just one thing I would just like to highlight, um, which shows that God wasn't just going through the motions of offering opportunities to repent. This is the, the, the point I was just um, I mentioned very briefly before. These were genuine opportunities. In, in, in chapter 9, we saw that there were some who believed and feared the word of the Lord, of, of Pharaoh's officials, and obeyed the warning. Um, and they were saved. And, and here in chapter 10, we've got some very brave officials arguing with Pharaoh, who could commanded that they just be executed straight away and saying let them go you know Egypt is ruined if you don't let them go um, minds were changing in Egypt and and Egyptians were being saved so there was a there was a genuine purpose there was there's different purposes overlaid in this in this story God was displaying his power yes God was judging Egypt and letting his people go but in all of that there were going to be Egyptians left over. And who knows, maybe Egyptians who would come to fear the one God and worship him and ignore all those other gods that Egypt um, thought that they had. But let's move on to the last of the plagues, um, plague of darkness. This is quite a short one. Um, verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky so that darkness spreads over Egypt, darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand towards the sky and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or move about for three days. Yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, go worship the Lord. Even your women and children may go with you. Only leave your flocks and herds behind. But Moses said, you must allow us to have sacrifices and burnt offerings to present to the Lord our God. Our livestock too must go with us. Not a hoof is to be left behind. We have to use some of them in worshipping the Lord our God until we get there. We won't know what we're to use to worship the Lord. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he was not willing to let them go. Pharaoh said to Moses, get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. Just as you say, Moses replied, I will never appear before you again. So, um, the plague of darkness. As we thought last week, this wasn't just a lack of light. Um, it was described as something which prevented people moving around. Um, it was a... Um, it was a, a darkness that could be felt. It was a supernatural darkness. I imagine, because you know, they, had, they had torches in Egypt, I imagine it was the kind of darkness that they left a torch and the torch burned and it made absolutely no difference. There was no light. God had sucked like a black hole every ounce of light out of, out of the parts of Egypt where the Israelites weren't living. So it was a, 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 super, a supernatural thing with no na uh, natural explanation that could be offered um, for that. Once again, Pharaoh did the same, didn't he? He appeared to yield, then he changed his mind. And, and that was his last chance, wasn't it? Because he himself said that he never wanted to see Pharaoh, um, Moses again, and perhaps under the heading of be careful what you wish for, that's exactly what Moses re replied to him. No, okay, that's it. You're never going to see me again. He'd run out of last chances. We've... Um, been thinking about God's judgment and mercy um, in these two weeks and in all the second chances that he gave the um, Egyptians to repent 
I think the point was made last week, although um, it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, it also says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So in that sense, Pharaoh hardened an already hard heart. Um, it's not that Pharaoh never had a chance. It's not that Pharaoh never had a free will choice to make, but God in his foreknowledge knew exactly what Pharaoh was going to do. He knew what choices Pharaoh was going to make, and that's how he could tell Moses right at the beginning of the story that you're going to do all these things, and I'm say all these things, I'm going to do all these things, and it's not going to make an ounce of difference to Pharaoh. It does, um, to me, just made me think a little bit about the idea of second chances. I'm sure we all feel as sinners saved by grace that we've had many second chances. But we often talk about now is today the day of salvation, don't we? When we're pleading the gospel, we want people to make the right decision and not put it off. But we sometimes add on to that little verse, today is the day of salvation because none of us knows how often we've got. And we're normally thinking about how many days of life we have left in this world. But that doesn't necessarily equate to how many chances that we've got. We don't necessarily have the opportunity to keep pondering whether we're going to accept the gospel right until the day that we die. We might run out of second chances well, well, well before that. If we come to a point of understanding and clear rejection of the gospel, that might be our last chance. We might not be given another, another opportunity. So, um, we've been thinking about judgment. I'd like to just conclude with a few more general points about judgment, which link to the story we've been, we, we, we've been um, thinking about. We think of judgment in two ways, don't we? Um, to judge is to determine the right or wrong um, of, of something, and also the degree to which somebody might be culpable for that for that wrong. That's what judges do, don't they, in, 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 in crown courts, to come to a judgment. And then it's often in two phases there, isn't it? There's a judgment about whether there's something being done wrong. There's a judgment about whether the person in the dock is, is um, how blameworthy they were. And then usually at the second sitting, there will be a judgment about what is the appropriate punishment to give to that individual, which is commensurate with the level of culpability that they have. So that's all judgments. But we also think about judgment as the punishment itself, don't we? The mighty acts of judgment that we've been, that we've been thinking about. We know that all have sinned and we all deserve punishment and the wages of sin is death. So death is the judgment after the judgment, isn't it? It's the judgment after God has, has judged. And Hebrews 9 and 12, 27 says that we're all destined to face judgment. We're destined to die once and then to face judgment. And the scriptures show that God will distinguish in that judgment between levels of culpability, levels of, levels of punishment. And we're not sure what that means, <laughs> being completely, completely honest with you, in the context of the wages of sin being death. Seems to be a very black and white outcome there. But then if we go to the Lord's words in Matthew 10, we would remember that he said that it would be more bearable for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than it would be for the people who rejected the, the gospel that was preached at that time. 
So there, there, are, there, are, there are things to do with the righteous judgment of, of God um, and how that will play out in future um, years and at the great white throne in the future. Um, we don't understand, we don't know, but we can see that there are, there's definitely evidence that God um, uses his judgment and, as we would expect, behaves absolutely righteously in, um, in, 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 in how he judges. The nature of judgment and, uh, and its outcome is always going to vary. So that's, I guess that's my point. For us, our salvation is guaranteed. Um, but we will be judged in the sense that our lives of service will be assessed. At the judgment seat of Christ, the, the clue's in the name, isn't it? At the judgment seat of Christ, our lives of service will be assessed. And if it is found that we've not served appropriately, as God expected, then there will be consequences. Um, there will be a suffering, there will be an experience of loss, there will be something which, which, which matters. But for unbelievers and others who've never heard the gospel, um, the many who have lived before Jesus even came into the world and know nothing of the gospel that, that, that we know, and other people who've perhaps heard the gospel but do not have, for whatever reason, the mental capacity to understand it and respond to it, all of these people will one day stand before God and be judged. And God will judge them in whatever way he considers righteously to be, to be fair and, 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 and just. As Abraham said, the God of all the earth will be, will be right. This doesn't give us an opportunity to preach a different gospel, a gospel that relies on the leniency of God when it comes to the great white throne. I think it's just a helpful thing to, to be aware of that we have all been saved in the way that the, that the New Testament gospel is preached, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and we are saved. And there are thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who lived before Christ was even born, including Moses and the faithful servants of, the, of old. They will also be judged and their lives of service will be, will be assessed. What God did with Egypt and throughout the Old Testament tells us a lot about his judgment and mercy. But of course it doesn't tell us the whole story. And actually what I've just said will only make sense when we get to the end of the story about how God judges. Because we've got to get to the cross. The cross is the answer. It is the point of the story. We've got to get to that conclusion. And that's what we're going to, doing, we're going to be doing next week. Um, and we're going to be thinking about the Passover in particular. That lovely verse that tells us that... Christ is our Passover lamb sacrificed for us. So we'll leave it there and we'll pick up the story again next week.